0: Lord, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Everyone have coffee this morning. All right, you need to be awake today. This is Trinity Sunday. You see, last Sunday we celebrated the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost today today we have the celebration flowing out of that Trinity Sunday. And the way the logic of the church year works is that now that the church has celebrated the incarnation of the Son, the sending of the Spirit, um, all that Jesus did, the Spirit coming as promised, we're poised finally to reflect on these arrivals, to talk about the majesty and mystery of the Holy Trinity. Now, if you remember... Uh, the basic slogan, the, the bumper sticker, if you had a, a cart in ancient Israel, was the Shema of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Can you imagine just for a moment? You have been raised reciting this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decades After decades, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then you experience Jesus. And then you experience the Holy Spirit. How do you fit that, what you had experienced, what you had witnessed into this foundational belief of monotheism, that there is one God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one uh, well, eventually, in what we call the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Uh, there's a scholar at Northern Seminary, uh, Bradley Nassif. He says the beautifully balanced doctrine of the Trinity uh, came in the fourth century. It was just codified then, not made then, but codified then, after church leaders reflected on how God exists as a unity of three equally divine and equally eternal persons. The Father is God, the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Three divine persons sharing one divine nature. Uh, that doctrine was eventually summarized in the Nicene Creed. Um, it's so important that that's one of the reasons that we say the Nicene Creed every Sunday when we gather and worship, uh, so that we start to have this seep into us. We start to learn. It gives us guardrails for our faith um, as Christians. So this morning is Trinity Sunday. We reflect on this doctrine And we're going to come at it from a unique angle, uh, just to make it a little harder this morning. I mean, rather than focus on the fuller revelation of the Holy Trinity that emerges from the pages of the New Testament, we're going to go back to that first reading in the book of Genesis. Um, Nothing like the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the Holy Trinity all on one Sunday in June. Again, I hope you had your coffee this morning. (laughs) Um, But if you look at the book of Genesis, this creation account that we're going to dig into a little bit, uh, there are some fascinating details that even from the very first pages uh, of the scriptures lay the groundwork for what will eventually be our doctrine of the Holy Trinity, especially as we kind of look back through what we know of Jesus and the Spirit. Um, I'll just say, kind of laying this on the table, um, you'll often hear that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And that's true Uh, in one sense. It's true that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. There is no chapter or verse that summarizes one God in three persons. But the entire Bible bears witness to this doctrine. You see it over and over again, even from these earliest pages in Genesis, this foundational narrative of how Almighty God created uh, the heavens and the earth. And how he created humanity is the high point of creation, being made in the image and likeness of God. So we're going to look at this this morning. Um, we're going to have two points, not three. I know you're surprised. It's Trinity Sunday. We're doing two points today. First point is before the beginning of creation. So if this is page one, we're right here, before the beginning of creation. Because think about it, The very first verse of the Bible is this summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let me tell you how that happened. Uh, That's what we have here. It's a a summary above it. It introduces this sweeping poetic narrative of creation. Uh, You heard as Andreas read it, this cadence, uh, this beautiful repetition in poetry. It's a foundational story of the Bible, a touchstone for God's people, specifically how we see God, how we see the world, and how we see ourselves. So there's a few important things I want to say just as we uh, come to the creation account. Uh, Many of you will know that I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, on the spectrum of conservative and uh, progressive seminaries, it's about as conservative um, as you can get in terms of theology and culture and things. Um, And when I was there, they were actually working on a, a new translation of the scriptures. Uh, The Net Bible, the New English Translation. Um, I think they're also trying to be kind of like, ooh, the Internet, you know, the Net Bible. Um, But it has, if you ever looked at this Bible, it has uh, footnotes after footnotes after footnotes. That's actually what they were aiming for. And a lot of them are translation notes. And they're trying to let you into the process of translation so you have a better access and more trust in what you have before you. Uh, But they had a huge problem with Genesis 1 1. You see, they wanted to translate this verse as when God created the heavens and the earth, instead of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the reason they wanted to do that is because if you read Hebrew, you know that's probably a good translation and rendering of uh, this Hebrew phrase when God created the heavens and the earth, instead of in the beginning. Now at this very conservative school with these conservative translators, there was a problem, and the financial backers threatened to pull all of their funding for this new translation. And so eventually they relented. And they actually went back to the more traditional reading in the beginning and then put like a two-page footnote <laughs> about why when the book God created the heavens and the earth is a better translation, and why am I telling you this? Um, it reminds me of two key things. First, this passage, especially in the last 150 years, has been engulfed in controversy and passion. It has been a battleground text, even between well-meaning Christians. Number two, this passage, Genesis 1, answers huge questions. But they're not always the one we want it to answer. And it doesn't answer all of the questions we have as we think about creation. Uh, Many of us want this passage to tell us when and how everything got started in the beginning. Instead, I would assert that this passage beautifully is trying to tell us who and why everything was created and what our place is in this good creation. Those are the questions we're going to look at today, specifically the question of who created everything as it relates to the Holy Trinity. Um, We don't have time to dive into the passionate debates about the timing and method of creation. Uh, For those looking to dig deeply, I'm going to give you a recommendation. Um, There's a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1. It's by John Walton, who's an Old Testament professor at Wheaton College. Um, And it's a good summary of these debates um, and what might be going on in the text. Um, sadly for me, we don't even have time to look at all the parallels. You can actually read this account and see everywhere that it subverts uh, the mythology of Egypt, where God's people had come from, and Canaan, where they were going into. Because a lot of what's happening here is they're trying to prepare God's people not to be swept away by idolatry, If you've read your Old Testament, you know that that's like every other chapter. They're getting swept away by idolatry. Um, It's trying to let them know, no, God created the heavens and the earth. Not all these other things that you are tempted to trust in. No, we're going to look at these basic questions, who and why. But there's probably one question we need to start with. Why is there something instead of nothing? Like that's behind this first verse, right? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why does God create anything in the first place? Well, the background of Genesis 1-1, before the beginning, this story begins because God is love. We often hear God is love and think, of course, God loves me, God loves you. We think of it as a verb, an action. But God is love is central to the essence of God. It's foundational for understanding God as triune, as trinity. Because God doesn't just love, God is love. And within the trinity is an eternal exchange of love. Uh, Pope John Paul II has massive reflections on these opening chapters of Genesis. Um, Here's what he says about this. Here is why we exist. Something instead of nothing. Love by its nature desires to expand its own communion. God certainly didn't need anyone else. The love of the Trinity is perfect and complete in itself. Yet out of sheer goodness and generosity, God wanted to create a great multitude of other persons to share in his own eternal ecstatic exchange of love. Before the beginning, why is there something instead of nothing? Because God is love. And that overflows in goodness and generosity. Again, that's from Pope John Paul II. Uh, Let me share a similar idea from Kevin DeYoung. Uh, Kevin is a conservative Presbyterian pastor. And by the way, when it comes to things like the Trinity, what you'll find is that all of the church (laughs) is on the same page about this. There's stuff we disagree with. Um, The Trinity is not one of those. And so Kevin DeYoung, this Presbyterian pastor, says with a biblical understanding of the Trinity... We can say that God did not create in order to be loved, but rather created out of the overflow of the perfect love that had always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who ever live in perfect and mutual relationship and delight. See, before the beginning, before there was anything, before Genesis 1-1, there was an eternal community of perfect love, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, on the one hand, we, we've actually codified it now. Like you can get it in a few just simple bullet points. Uh, St. Augustine famously put it this way, uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And then don't get confused. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, there is only one God. One God, three persons. Um, Sometimes you'll actually see that represented as what's called the shield of faith. I put up a picture of this on social media, um, and you'll see kind of how this lays out, this basic teaching about the Trinity. Um, It's a big doctrine. It's a majestic doctrine. There is mystery in this doctrine. Um, And by the way, this is Pope John Paul II again. It says mystery. Like When we say the word mystery, sometimes I think we can use it as a cop-out. But says mystery does not refer to some unsolvable puzzle. It refers to the innermost reality of God and his eternal plan for humanity. These realities are so far beyond anything we can comprehend, all we can really utter is the word mystery. And yet God is knowable, not based on our ability to decipher some divine puzzle, but because God has made himself known. We know what we know of the mystery of the Trinity because God has chosen to show it to us, to reveal it to us. And here's the innermost secret. God has revealed. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. He has destined us to share in that exchange. The doctrine of the Trinity is something we embrace. Um, and we find that as we embrace this doctrine, we're invited into this love of Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, I was always raised being told about having a relationship with God. And I was never told that I was invited into the relationship that already exists within God. Father, Son, and Spirit. God is love. All right, that's before the beginning. Let's look at the Trinity at work in creation. Because if you read this creation account uh, carefully, there are these tantalizing little Uh, arrows and crumbs along the trail, pointing to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Um, I'll say, and this is just, hey, cards on the table, Um, I don't think that the Trinity would have been obvious to the first audience of this book. If you just read the Hebrew Scriptures, you're going, hey, something weird's happening here. I don't think you're going to go, oh, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, of course. But now we can look back and see how even uh, the, the... The preparation was made even in these earliest pages of Genesis. I'm also going to talk a little bit about some New Testament context because the New Testament tells us a little more about this story and what was happening in uh, before the beginning and the creation of everything. Because there are hints, early hints, of this distinction, uh, not difference. That's a clear, that's a technical term. There's distinction, not difference, within the persons of the Trinity Father, Son, and Spirit. Distinction. Um, as well as you see an early hint of plurality, um, an idea of the triunity within God uh, in Genesis 1. So it starts as early as verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in verse 2, you might go, wait a minute, how do we just go from God to the Spirit of God? What is this distinction? The text, is is it just a metaphor? I mean, we, of course, hear this and think of what? The baptism of Jesus. <laughs> when there's water and there's Jesus and the Spirit comes like a dove. But you just get this early hint right there. Hey, there's a little more to this than we've thought. There's some distinction between God and uh, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And then we have this incredible account of creation. Um, it's poetic. You see the section where um, God forms things, and then he fills them. with all the, You just see this forming and filling uh, throughout the creation narrative. And then you finally get down to the end, chapter 1, verse 26. And God says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, a little further down. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Um, I know we have some English professors here in the congregation this morning. I imagine if you were grading this first time through, you would be like, oh, red line. Pronoun disagreement. (laughs) How are we switching from singular to plural pronouns here? What is going on? And so from the earliest days of the church, the church has looked back and said, oh, that was this hint of plurality even then. Let us Make man in our own image. Um, The church fathers uh, went crazy with this idea. Let us make man. You see it right there. You see the distinction between God and the Spirit of God? There's some distinction of persons. You see, let us make man. There's some plurality within God. That's right in the very first chapter of the Bible. We see a little bit of the foundation of uh, the Holy Trinity. And then there's one other thing that the church really has fun with in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it. Um, When we are created, when humankind is made, did you notice there's a pattern that's broken with that let us? The entire creation, what's what's the refrain? Let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. Uh, God is creating by the force of his word, by fiat, by command, let there be, let there be. Uh, But then we come to humankind, and what does he say? Let us make. Let us make. Uh, It's fascinating that Gregory of Nyssa, who helped kind of formulate the Nicene Creed, says for humans, there was deliberation. Let us. There was consultation. He did not say, as he did when creating other things, let there be a human, to see how worthy you are. Your origins are not an imperative. Instead, God deliberated about the best way to bring to life a creation worthy of honor. Let us make, not just let there be. Similarly, John Chrysostom, also in the fourth century, says, let us make suggests deliberation, collaboration, and conference with another person. So what is it whose pending creation is granted so great an honor? Humanity. Male and female, the greatest and most marvelous of living beings, the creation worthy of honor before God. Chrysostom writes, there is here this deliberation, collaboration, and communion, not because God needs advice. He says, God forbid saying such a thing, but so that the very impact of the language of our creation would show us honor. And I partly share that with you to just go, friends, we stand... Uh, on the shoulders of theological giants as we consider the Trinity. We receive the hard work of theologians and pastors and those who have carefully articulated these truths and handed them down, passed them down to us, not to figure out for ourselves, but to receive and to guard and to entrust and to hand on to the next generation. Again, this quote from Pope John Paul II, you'll hear it. it's, it's literally my favorite quote of any Roman Catholic. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has destined us to share in that exchange as those made in the image and likeness of God. These very verses speak of the Trinity and the glory of humanity created in the image and likeness of God. And so as we think about the who and why of creation, Um, just remind you a little bit of what the New Testament says here. Uh, Because it gives a starring role to Jesus. Go figure, it's the New Testament. We don't have time to mind the depths of these rich passages, but I want to remind you of them. Uh, John 1, verses 1 through 3, John retells this story in this way. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. and Without Him was not anything made that was made. This is the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, who emptied Himself and was willing to come and be born uh, among us. Philippians 2 has a whole song and poem about that. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17 um, Paul writes, He, His beloved Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In other words, all three persons of the Holy Trinity are evident and active, working in perfect unity and single-mindedness in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the making of humanity, male and female, in the image and likeness of God. So a few things as we conclude. Uh, A.W. Tozer, who knows the name A.W. Tozer? Okay, a couple folks. Once said that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's why at least once a, once a year, we go, hey, let's just make sure we're on the same page with the Holy Trinity because we want to think about that rightly. Um, we don't want to be in community groups and have these prayers that would say, Heavenly Father, thank you for dying on the cross. <laughs> and indwelling." we, we want to have clarity. We want to understand Um, how Father, Son, and Spirit have been at work in our salvation, how we think about God as he has revealed himself. Because that determines everything. I mean, that's as foundational as you can get. I mean, Christians argue about a lot of stuff. But if we're not Trinitarian, if we don't have our doctrine of the Trinity, what we think about God correctly, friends, that's not recognizably Christian. That's something else entirely. And so our vision of God determines how we see things, how we see our world, how we see our neighbors, how we see ourselves, our future, our past. What does it mean? Um, How do we think about the beauty of creation knowing God has made this? How do we look at the honor and dignity of each person going, oh, they're made in the image and likeness of Almighty God. There is glory and dignity and honor there. What comes to mind when you think about God? Is it just an angry judge? An impersonal force? You get that from some people. There's something higher up there. I don't know. It's at work. Old guy in the sky. You know, you see like a cartoon depiction of God. It's just, it's comical, right? Long beard, kind of maybe on like, I don't know, cane, something like that. Is it just a sense of awe and wonder? I mean, there are parts of creation where you can go and you are overwhelmed with beauty, um, the sublime. Is it just that sense you get? Or is there more? What we think about God matters. And thankfully, we are not left to deduce this on our own. I don't think you're going to look at the sky and go, oh, one God, three persons, of course. The Holy Trinity. You're going to know there's something bigger we can get that through just what we can be smart enough to see, uh, what we would call general revelation. But it takes a special, gracious work of God to say, let me tell you who I am. Let me reveal the Holy Trinity, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not left to figure this out on our own. Um, but we're told this pretty clearly. I mean, I've heard some people say, hey, why do you bother with the Trinity? I mean, It's confusing. If you go read folks like Thomas Jefferson, they're like, this is a waste of time. This is illogical arithmetic. We don't even believe in that. Why is your little mind trying to comprehend the majesty and mystery of God? And I would just say, we cannot understand it fully, but we can understand it sufficiently because God has chosen to reveal it to us. The Trinity is a central teaching about God in the Bible. Yes, the word is not there, but the doctrine is all over the pages of Scripture, even in the earliest pages of Genesis. And although God is bigger than our ability to fully comprehend Him, we can know Him as He reveals Himself in Holy Scripture. We can embrace the Holy Trinity and be invited into the embrace of God who is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who is love. And furthermore, we can worship. We can adore God, Father, Son, and and Spirit, we can delight in the Holy Trinity. Um, and I would just say, if I have wet your appetite at all uh, to figure out the nuances of this doctrine, because it's 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 precise. It takes nuance. Um, I remember one time I was giving a sermon on the Trinity, and I had a slip of the tongue, and it was a heresy I said on accident. And I was like, Oh no, they're gonna burn me by the coffee. <laughs> I made the AV person, like, take it out before they posted it online. Like, this is, you know, we've got to be careful around this stuff. Um, you can get a pronoun wrong. You can get an article wrong. A, Z, is it definite? Is it, like, we can get in big trouble here. We want to be precise when it comes to the Trinity. I mean, I would say if you're intrigued at all, there's a book I found uh, this week. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. It's by Michael Reeves. I almost read it. uh, I almost made it our Lenten read, but decided we should do some Bible study instead. But "Delighting in the Trinity" by Michael Reeves, and uh, I'll, I'll have this summary quote just to wrap up this morning. He says, "The Trinity can be presented as a fussy and irrelevant dogma, but the truth is that God is love because God is a Trinity. For it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be Trinity." you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.